welcome to Creekside Church this morning. We are so glad to see everyone here. Uh, at this time, Mark has a couple of announcements, so uh, turn your attention to up front. Good morning, and uh, a couple special announcements. Uh, first of all, I just want to encourage everyone to be in prayer for Lucas and Lois Richard, who are on their way to Liberia today for their uh, new venture that the Lord has prepared for them in missions work there in Monrovia, West Africa, right along the coast there, Liberia. Uh, so just pray for them. They've got a place arranged and a, and a vehicle uh, on its way, and just pray the Lord would help them and, and get them, help them get settled in and, and uh, that he would bless their work. And then I also just wanted, uh, we have a member announcement today, and uh, I, I'm just so happy about this one in particular. This is my sister-in-law, Shania, and her husband, Jason. And uh, for me, it's just a real joy and privilege to stand with them this morning, introducing them as members of Creekside Church uh, the Lord has done a, a work in their lives, has brought them down a road to this point that uh, we're so thankful about in answer to many prayers. And, uh, and so I just want to say, again, a reminder, we did this a few weeks ago, but membership, we believe, is important. As a believer, you're part of the body of Christ universal, but it's also important to make that commitment to a local body of believers where we, we are committed to each other, to serving each other, to um, using our spiritual gifts together. And there's a sense of accountability with that, too, that we can come alongside each other and encourage one another, hold one another up in prayer and, and help you. You, you guys uh, uh, have uh, five, six kids at home on different weeks, and uh, so we, we, they need our help and, and prayers and encouragement. You know, this is kind of a, a big deal, a big time of life when you're raising children and, and when you've got a lot of them, all the more so, right? <laughs> uh, I just want to pray for you guys. and. Uh, commit you to our fellowship here. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for Jason and Shania, and I, I just thank you so much for the work you've done in their lives. Lord, it, uh, I'm just overjoyed to be standing up here with them this morning, uh, seeing the handiwork you've done, the work you've done in their lives to bring them to this point. I just thank you that they're up here on the stage even wanting to use their gifts that you've given them to, to your glory. And may you bless them, may you bless their family, uh, help them in their growth, help them to raise their children for the Lord. May we all stand around them with our, with our arms around them, uh, helping them along this road, this journey uh, of life. And we just, we're just thankful, Lord, for how you do a, a great work uh, around the world, too, Lord. We're, we're not just a local body of believers focused only on ourselves, but we also pray for Liberia and the Liberians. We pray for Lucas and Lois as they're arriving there today that you'll bless them and help them in their getting going in the ministry. And now, Lord, uh, we take an offering, and, and we do that, Lord, out of a heart of gratitude and thanks for all, your, all you've provided for us. Uh, may you bless it to your glory and your kingdom's service. Amen. Well, we just uh, want to welcome... Gordon and Mary Beth Johnstone in our service this morning. Gordon is a pastor candidate here. Uh, the elders have, and deacons have spent some time interviewing Gordon and gotten a chance to uh, uh, talk to him, pray with him, pray about it. And we just really feel like he is a, a man who could very well uh, come into this congregation and serve us well. And we just want to present him before you as he speaks this morning. And afterwards, uh, if, you've, if you've been on our email list, you've probably got a, a link to an online feedback form. We would really love for you to do that 
um, today, if you could, this week. Um, so I just want to pray for Gordon before he comes up here and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, I just I thank you uh, for the work you're doing here at Creekside. Lord, I thank you for the people here. Thank you for the spirit of unity and love and a desire to see your kingdom grow for you, for you, the Lord, to build up your church here. And I just pray now as Gordon comes up and preaches from 1 Peter 5 that your spirit would be upon him, that he would speak forth your truth and that our hearts will be ready to receive it, that you might minister to each and every one in whatever life circumstance they are. Lord, we just commit this time to you for your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles, if you already haven't, to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, I thank the Lord for the opportunity to be with you this morning. You know, the circumstances we're both in are momentarily cloaked with the unknown for both you and me and my family, but uh, you can be assured the Lord is working some kind of plan. That's what we have, a God who can take all the circumstances in the universe across the entire world and weave them all together, and you are part of that. We are all part of that, that he takes notice of us, each of us individually and as a church, and uh, he has just the right person for you in store, whether that would be me or someone else, so we give him praise in it, but um, whatever the case, it's a joy to be with you. It's always a joy to be with God's people Sunday morning and be worshiping together and recognizing our Lord came and rescued us from the penalty of sin. Well, the passage chosen, chosen for this morning, and I'll, I'll have more to say. Usually, you know, I'd, a candidate would give you a little bit of information about himself and testimonial. I'll have a chance to say that. Um, and talk about my ministry, my testimony later on. So we're going to just dive right into the word right now. So the passage chosen this morning is 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. And uh, Peter's readers, his audience, the churches he wrote to, they were in the middle of a storm, metaphorically speaking. They were being tested by fire, as Peter wrote in 1-7. And they were in a fiery ordeal, as uh, chapter 4, verse 12 indicates. But by the time we get to chapter 5, Peter had written many things uh, to encourage his readers, to give them a sense of hope. And he also gave them many exhortations throughout the letter. And as we come here into chapter 5, it's his last series of exhortations to the church. And I always think that's interesting that um, he, he, he doesn't hold back from exhorting those who are in really desperate circumstances, you know, because the human tendency would be to say, oh man, I, I really, these people are hurting, I, I, I don't want to say anything to upset them, I just, just want to help them feel better. But um, that's not the case in the book of 1 Peter. He did that. He gave them hope. But he also laid out the expectations that God has for them as, a, as churches. So let's read the passage. Again, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And so you know I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version. And uh, I, I know you read out of many, so I'm going to try to be sensitive to that as we move through and pointing some different things out. But uh, 1 Peter, chapter 5. Here we go. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, 
but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So as you can uh, just tell, that is an amazing passage as Peter wraps up his letter. I'm trying to advance this, so it's not working. This always happens, so this is my test. How do you handle something that doesn't go right? Um, There we go. All right. Uh, In this passage, there really is this emphasis on three areas of life that that are related to us and our our spiritual beings and who we are, but uh, three areas of life that God wants us to get right. He wants us to do what is right in these three areas of, of life. Oh, thanks. Thanks. There we go. Good. I guess I needed to turn it on. Uh, so and you'll see up on the slide in front of you, these three areas of life are the elders' leadership and the church's humility toward one another and uh, humbly accepting God's afflicting circumstances. And I do title that carefully. They're God's afflicting circumstances. They are not circumstances by chance that afflict us, but circumstances that God brings to afflict us. So in view of that theme that's here in the first seven verses of chapter five, I've titled the message, Doing What is Right. Now, uh, those verses, verses one through seven, they don't really explicitly state doing what is right. But chapter 4, verse 19 does. And as we move on, I'll show you what the connection is between those two because there's an underlying current here about doing what is right. And particularly in these verses, doing what is right in those three areas of our spiritual lives. So, So let's get started on those. The first area related to our spiritual lives that Peter exhorted us to do the right way is the elders' leadership. Now, that first word in verse 5 is therefore, and uh, it's a connective word that helps to show how this idea in chapter 4, verse 17 through 19, more than one idea, ideas, uh, connect to these, these three different areas. And you can see up on there that's... Um, That looks like a piece of licorice, but that's really a wire showing that these verses are connected together. That one little conjunction there shows, well, well, just how much of an emphasis there is on doing what is is right. Now, in some of your versions, unfortunately, uh, the word, therefore, doesn't translate. If you're reading out of the New King James or the King James Version or NIV, you you won't see the conjunction there, therefore at the beginning of the verse. If you read now the ESV, they use the conjunction so. But um, I assure you there's a conjunction there, even if you're reading out of those verses. It's there. It's there in the original Greek text. And it is important. It is very important. So I want to give you just a little bit more uh, 
information about this. And to do that, I, I have to read these verses in, uh, in chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The outcome won't be very good for them. I can, that's what Peter is saying. I can assure you that if God is judging us and we are his people, the outcome for those who don't even know him is going to be very bad. And it is difficulty with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Peter is just saying that with difficulty that the righteous is saved, the final salvation. We go through this life, it's difficult. It's difficult getting to that end when we are finally completely saved. And if that's difficult for us, man, it's, it's really bad for those who don't know the Lord. Then verse 19, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Okay, so let me just point out three things in there. It's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. That is, um, man, that is like anti-PC to even bring something like that up, but there it is in the scripture. Second thing to point out, Peter says, therefore, entrust yourselves to the faithful creator. Okay, God will bring judgment on his household, us, but, but it's okay. Entrust yourselves to him. And then the third thing, do what is right. It specifically says, in doing what is right. Be focused on doing what is right. So, so really quick explanation of those. The judgment that Peter is referring to here is um, not condemnation type of judgment. And we know he's not speaking about that because we have Romans 8, 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But so, so what kind of judgment is he talking about here? What kind of judgment does God bring upon the church? It is more of the judgment along the line of an evaluation process. God evaluates his church. He, he judges them and evaluates them to see if the church is living up to this, his standards. And if the church is not living up to his standards, well then, he uses corrective measures to lift us up and bring us to the point where we do live up to the standards. So it's, it's very clear. God puts the church through a judgment process here. And then he says, but, but it's okay. Even though God judges, it's what Peter's communicating, it's okay, you can entrust yourselves to God because he loves you, he cares for you, and trust has this idea, give yourself over to God. You, you could put yourself in God's hands, even though he's judging you, even though he's putting you through this difficult, afflicting process. His judgment is difficult. The circumstances those churches were in, the context of 1 Peter, the storm they were in, well, that is the judgment. That's what God uses bring us up to the standards he wants us. That is the process of judgment. And then the third issue to point out of those verses, the phrase, in doing what is right. You see, he's putting us through this process, this judgment process. We can entrust ourselves to him, but it's all about doing what is right. That's what Peter is calling his audience to do. Do what is right. God is judging you. God is evaluating you. You need to be focused on doing what is right. So you can see these are strong exhortations Peter laid out to these believers in Asia Minor. That's where these churches were all in um, what would be modern-day Turkey in that area where he wrote to. So that's how Peter finished chapter 4. And then in chapter 5 he writes, Therefore, 
So there's this, this connection. Do what is right, 419. Therefore, here are three areas that I want you to do what is right in. And, and so this is, the, this is the underlying context. This is what this, this is all about, these, these exhortations. Really being of the mind to do what is right, what God wants us to, as opposed to maybe doing what we feel like or doing what is popular or doing what is pragmatic. No, the, the issue is doing what is right. And, you know, let me illustrate this in allegorical terms. You know, think of it like a big corporation, like ExxonMobil. If any of you are watching the basketball games, ExxonMobil is advertising, you know, and they make their company look incredible. But think about it like ExxonMobil and the president puts out a statement, a declaration. There's a new evaluation process. It's a judgment process all across our corporation, all across the world for the next year. It's going to be a painful process. Employees may be transferred. Jobs may be cut. People may lose their positions. And so the evaluation process will result in some affliction and some heartache and some pain. Now, in view of this process, the president declares this judgment process. The VPs, they get busy and they start putting out memos to everybody in the corporation that they need to do what is right in these operational areas. Let's just say three very important top operational areas that they need to get what is right because they are under evaluation. Now, that impending process, judgment process, would definitely uh, bring some motivation to the employees. If you could imagine yourself in that, that situation, you would be motivated to do what is right. So there is a similar parallel here to 1 Peter chapter 5. Just like how the president in that allegory initiates an evaluation process and the VPs exhort the employees, so God has initiated an evaluation process, a judgment process for his household. We, his household. And he wants us to get some things right. There are a lot of different things he wants us to get right, but Peter focuses on three of those areas. So the allegory doesn't hold up because God is not really like a president of a company because we can entrust ourselves to him. He is good. He loves us. He cares for us, even though he puts us through this evaluation process. Well, that helps you to understand the context and let you know why I've drawn out this theme because it's there. It's, it's the underlying theme. And it's why I've titled it Doing What is Right. So if you, if you have a take-home today, you know, the preacher always says a lot of things. And um, sometimes it's hard. You, you rarely take home an outline. But it, a take-home would be this, this conviction to be people who do what is right. I mean, that's hard to come by in this world, isn't it? I mean, you, you rub shoulders with people of the world, and uh, rarely is their motive to do what is right. How often do we see that in politics? I mean, it's like, those people up in Washington, do they want to do what is right, or do they want to do what is pragmatic, beneficial to themselves, on and on it goes? Well, let's get back to this first area. The elders' leadership. You know, Peter addressed a few foundational concepts that uh, comprise the right way for the elders to lead the church. And now we're going to work our way through them, and uh, 
we can't plummet the details here with all these verses. Matter of fact, we, we are not going to get through all those um, points. It's, they're just, this text is rich, so um, we'll probably just get through the first point there, the elders' leadership. And um, I guess that means you'll have to invite me back to finish. But um, first thing, the elders. The elders are called. This is what is right for the elders. And I get to speak to the elders. I don't know if this is a coincidence that I'm preaching on this passage. This was given to me as an assignment. I didn't pick it. So um, <clears throat> it's no coincidence. I'm preaching about myself here and about the other elders. And uh, so elders are called to shepherd the flock of God exercising over. That's what's right. That's what Peter's driving at. In doing what is right, chapter 4, verse 19, therefore, this is what you elders need to do. This is your responsibility. You are to shepherd the flock of God. And Peter employed the shepherding metaphor to describe what elders are supposed to do. Now, if you think about actual shepherds, and it's kind of hard for us because most of us don't have any exposure to shepherds, but um, they do the work of guiding, guarding the sheep, feeding the sheep, leading the sheep, caring for the sheep, just taking care of the sheep, protecting sheep. You know, we kind of would all get that, that picture in our mind. And the flocks are, and maybe you've never put this picture in your mind about sheep, but flocks are made up of all types of sheep. There are male sheep, which are a ram. There are lots of rams in the flock. And that's not the picture. Those are the big horns. Smash it. I mean, that's not the picture of the little weak type of sheep. There are rams in the flock. And there are, there are uh, baby sheep in the flock, lambs. And there are female sheep, which are sheep. That's what normally when we think of sheep, we think of female sheep, which are ewes. And there are many different purposes that sheep fulfill. Remember, we're, we're talking about actual sheep here. And uh, like merino wool sheep. And some of you wear merino wool. It's just a nice wool for clothing. Or uh, carpet wool sheep. There's a carpet wool breed of sheep, and that's what they make carpets out of. Not, not our synthetic carpets, but fine carpets, good carpets, are made out of real wool. Lots of different breeds, lots of different uses they're used for, and lots of different stages that sheep are in, from lambs up to rams. And so the flock, just varied, varied type of flock. So when Peter employed this, this picture of a flock and sheep. How does that transfer? You know, that's, that's the metaphor. How does that transfer over into what an elder is actually supposed to do? Well, the church is like a flock made up of all types of profiles. No, nobody is alike. And we're all different. There are rams, there are lambs, there are ewes. There are older, more mature people. There are like lambs, Christians who are baby Christians. There are younger people. You get the purpose. All different uses too. God has us doing all different things. We're all gifted differently. We've all been created in Christ Jesus for a different purpose to fulfill a different function. So that's what the church is like. It's like the flock. And the elders are like the shepherds who take care of the flock. And what does that mean? Like a shepherd of a flock who feeds the flock. Elders are to teach the flock. They are to exhort and correct, and admonish, and counsel, and have a ministry of the word of God to do this. And I want to take you to a few alternative passages. Flip over to, to, to 2 Timothy. and These are reminder passages. I'm sure they're reminder passages, and you know well, because you're an elder-led church. 
But these remind us of what the elders' responsibilities are. And the picture of a shepherd, well, this is what a shepherd does. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is what a shepherd does. He spends his time with the word of truth, studying and understanding the word to accurately handle the word and to deliver the word to the people, and not just Sunday morning, but in all different contexts. Now turn, turn on over to 2 Timothy 3, 16. I'm going to read a few verses down. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So that is what the elders are supposed to do. Elders are supposed to have a ministry of the word doing those things, preaching the word, communicating the word, bringing the truth to the flock. Like the shepherd who feeds the sheep, the elders are to feed, nourish God's people on the word of God. Now, like the shepherd, we'll move on. Like the shepherd of a flock who leads, guards, and cares for the flock. So elders lead and guard the church, care for the church, and the spiritual needs of the church. Turn over to 1 Timothy 4, 6. I have to get there too. This is, this is a tremendous passage, again, that kind of goes counter church culture that we live in. Maybe not your church culture, but the greater counter church culture in America. Verse 6 in chapter 4. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Again, so Paul writing to Timothy, this translates into an elder's responsibility. Timothy was a pastor, and we take this out of the scripture, and this is what we as elders say, well, this is what we're supposed to do. And what did Paul, what was he referring to in pointing out these things? What things? The previous verses are all about false teaching, false doctrine, problems with the truth that was circulating through Ephesus. And that's what Timothy was supposed to do. To be a good servant of Christ Jesus, he was supposed to point these things out. And that's what elders do to care for the flock, to guard the flock. It's a spiritual care. Yes, there are other things that care for the flock. You know, we, as elders, yesterday there was a wedding. We do weddings, do funerals. Man, we cook lunches sometimes. We, I saw some of the elders, I think, over in the lunch. You know, we do those things, but, but, but that's not what defines the elder. Here's what defines the elder. This is our ministry, this, this truth, and we're supposed to point out to the body error and a negative ministry is not supposed to be something that happens constantly all the time. But there's a negative side of the elder ministry to point out what is wrong. Now, like shepherds, 
who do what they can to multiply the flock. I'm bringing in a little bit of different metaphor. You know what shepherds do? They try to multiply their flocks. You know, they're, not, they're trying to make those things grow. I'm back into actual shepherds right now. Remember Jacob, Laban, and Jake, man, he, he knew how to make those flocks grow, that whole picture. We don't have time to go back and look at that. But in a similar way, elders are called to have this ministry of doing what they can to help the church multiply. And let me turn to, to, to Ephesians 4.12. If you want to go there, just listen. Ephesians 4.11 and 12. And uh, this may not at first appear like, what do you mean? How does this passage fit with helping the, the church multiply? Let me read it. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Not, not the word pastor, I don't know what version you have again, but um, it may use elders. But pastors, elders, in the scripture, they're the same thing. It's the same word, they're, they overlap. And then verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. These are terms of multiplication. These are terms of serving one another. The elders exist to help prepare or equip the church so that they can function in ministering to one another. And that relates to the multiplication of the church. Because a healthy church will be a growing church. So if the elders are doing their ministry to help equip and prepare the church, to be who they are, they will minister to one another and be healthy and should naturally grow because a natural, natural, healthy, living thing that's healthy will grow. Well, that's probably enough with that. And I'll say this, Peter didn't come up with this, this metaphor on his own, did he? We, we know well, he got this from our Lord. Our Lord used the shepherd metaphor to emphasize the apostles' ministry to the church. And, uh, and I can't help it. Let, let's go back there because let's read what the Lord has to say about this. Again, this is, real, this is so important. You know what, not, as we move through here, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I'm going to make some comments that will show you why this is so important that we take time to walk through this and really understand what elders are supposed to do. So, so I want to spend a few minutes with the Lord's words, and I'll try to work through this quickly. But the passage is John chapter 21, 15 through 17. This is one of uh, our Lord's post-resurrection appearances to Peter and the other apostles, soon to be apostles, still disciples at this point. John 21, 15. So when they had finished breakfast, if you, you remember I, you remember the context, and they were out fishing, and the Lord was on the beach, and he made breakfast for them, and they finally figured it out was him, and they ran in, and they couldn't believe the Lord. He's, he's alive. Here he is. Okay. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the these Jesus was pointing at, it's interesting, he was either pointing at the other disciples, do you love me more than these, these men here? Or he was pointing at the fish, and the fish represented his career. And he was saying, do you love me more than these? And other, do, you, do you love me more than your career, your fishing career? It's one of the two, I, Whichever one, the Lord is making a comparison here and, and bringing some conviction to Peter. And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. And then Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you, you 
know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. And then Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he, Peter, that is Peter, said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I can't imagine having this conversation with the Lord and just, I mean, the Lord was just emphasizing and, and just drilling it into Peter's mind what he was supposed to do as an apostle to feed and shepherd the flock of God. Now, those terms, again, refer to teaching and equipping and caring for and guiding and leading and everything that teaching brings that we read about in First and Second Timothy. That was what the apostles were supposed to do. That ministry has been transferred over in the church to the elders, and that is what the elders are supposed to do. Now, that metaphor, metaphor does uh, leave one thing out about elders. And uh, metaphors are always kind of hard to read, you know. And, and I look at it, and I, I can see one thing that, that is lacking because the elders, too, are sheep. They're not just shepherds. They function like a shepherd, but they too are sheep who need a shepherd. And we, what should come to your mind is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And uh, elders just happen to be sheep that function like shepherds. And I came up with a new name for, for elders. Elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds. I came up with a new word for all of them. Sheepherds. Get it? Because they're sheep and they're shepherds. Sheepherds put together. They are sheepherds. Believe me, I know this because I'm one. And all the other elders here will say, yeah, oh yeah, yeah I'm a sheep. I know that for sure because I have my weaknesses in, in all of that. So uh, now, the elders' job responsibilities may seem obvious to you. Again, you're an elder-led church. You have been. However, the role of elders out there in the church at large, and for anyone who may walk into this, this door from a different church com, uh, context, but their idea of an elder could be much different than what this idea of an elder is in the Bible because out there in the church, and uh, this especially applies to those elders who are called pastors, uh, there's become this issue of confusion of, of what they are supposed to do and what their identity is, and uh, their identity is... Uh, that of an organizational builder, you know, a savvy marketeer or an administrator or the lead guys in the board of directors or visionaries or fundraisers or service providers or corporate managers or uh, sometimes spiritual superheroes who have the secret spiritual formulas to fix people's souls and transform them. That, that's, the, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He comes in and transforms the soul. Or sometimes they're viewed as, as uh, this is sad, they're viewed as, as little demi-saviors who can save the church. Those are, those are not what elders should be identified as, all those profiles. So there's often this confusion about their responsibilities, who they are and what they are. And out of that often comes undue disappointments because expectations are broken. The pastors, elders, they don't live up to the manufactured expectations 
and people get angry. And so that's happening all over the world. There is major confusion. And that confusion could all be solved if we just come back to the word, those things we just went over. And there is a commitment to the picture of what a shepherd is. When it comes to the area of doing what is right with elders' leadership, elders are just shepherds. They're humble shepherds with with these biblical responsibilities that, I won't list them all again, that, that we just worked through. So the elders have to do what is right. We're coming back to this theme. The elders have to do what is right as shepherds, as sheepherds. Why? So that the church is rightly ministered to and therefore more likely to be healthy. And why is that relevant to the context? So that God's judgment process finds us as we ought to be. And that process goes better for us. Say better than going more difficult. You know, there's levels of affliction and difficulty. If we do what is right, God doesn't afflict us as much. Sometimes he afflicts us no matter what. But there's a connection here between doing what is right and experiencing God's judgment. Well, let's move on in the text. Peter said more about doing what is right when it comes to the elders' leadership. The flip side. In verse 2, he wrote that they are not to serve under compulsion, but voluntarily. In other words, qualified men in the church were not to be like reluctant draftees compelled into something they really didn't want to do. Rather, they're to serve voluntarily out of their heart. Now, that was especially meaningful in this context, in the first century. You've got to take your mind back to hearing what, what this meant back then. Well, the church was under severe persecution at that point. Matter of fact, there is this de- debate on whether or not the, the church at that point had started to experience the persecution of Nero. And I think there could be a pretty, case, pretty good case built for they, they had not quite experienced that, but they were just several months away from experiencing the worst affliction they would ever experience. But so they were, were almost there, and they were under this persecution. And, I mean, it was dangerous to identify with the church, especially dangerous to identify as an elder with the church, as a leader of the church. You were a target. So you can see why Peter would write, you know, you shouldn't be drug into this thing under compulsion. Men out there, you're to sign up voluntarily. Now, most likely the elders serving here in the Urbandale area will not ever be martyred for their faith and experience this kind of pressure. But, but I will say, eldership requires a serious time commitment, and it requires a serious emotional investment. And that is a difficult ministry. And God doesn't want to drag any man into that, any qualified man into that. He wants a man to voluntarily give himself to that kind of sacrificial service. So this is what is right. This is what is right for elders to do their leadership voluntarily and not under compulsion. Now, Peter also wrote in verse 2 that doing what is right for the elders means that they don't minister for sordid gain, but with eagerness. 
Now, the ESV uses the phrase shameful gain. It's interesting, the other versions. The New King, King James Version has dishonest gain, and the NIV has not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Now, minister, ministering for sordid gain, kind of, it speaks of elders who do not have the genuine interests of the church in mind. Their motivating factor in their heart is to uh, serve for money. That's really the only motive in their heart. And that's what makes it shameful. Because it's, it's not shameful for a man to serve as an elder, and, and especially this, this refers to those called pastors, uh, to serve for money. And that's obvious. Paul said, don't muzzle out the ox. But it is shameful when the motive of the heart is doing that for money. That's the sole purpose. But this is my job. I put in my 40 hours, and that is it. That's a shameful thing. That's sordid gain. And that's obviously wrong and not doing what is right. Now, there's an interesting sub-point in the verse. I'll take you down this road. Peter contrasted this motive of serving for money, sordid gain, with serving for eagerness. Now, if you're you're thinking here for a moment. Think about what maybe what the contrast would better be. Serving, me serving, or one of the elders serving for sordid gain, or serving for the purposes of serving out of a heart of integrity. That seems more of a contrast, right? Sordid gain is a bad motive, a dishonest thing, so you sh- the elders should be exhorted to have integrity and honesty. But rather, he uses the word eagerness. So the comparison between sordid gain and out of a heart of e- eagerness and, and I, as I was studying through, I asked myself, well, well why? What's the going on here with these words? And, uh, you know, the word eagerness uh, in the original is prothemus, which is um, a word that really communicates this idea of wanting to serve as an elder for the sake of wanting to do the work of the ministry. And, and, and that it's, it's, it's parallel with this idea of voluntary being voluntarily serving, and and also in verse 2. There's a parallel and an overlap, but it's not quite the same thing. It it hits this idea of, man, I, as as a prospective elder, if I were, I want to serve because this is what God has put in my heart. I want to do that kind of shepherding work that we had already defined. That's that's what I want to do. So the word in English, the word eager, it kind of suggests more of an emotional state of mind, like really being excited, you know, or, man, I'm, I'm revved up, like you're revved up, you're watching a game of some kind, and, and you're eager to, for something to happen. You know, that's not really the idea that Peter had in here, or the Lord had through Peter. This is, this is really more of a settled idea in the heart. I am settled. This is who I am as a man. This is how I am gifted. This is what I want to do in my heart. I want to do the work of an elder, the work of a shepherd. And you could see why that would be so important that Peter wrote that back in the first century context of persecution. A man has to be in that place. And bottom line, elders need to feel this compulsion in their hearts for shepherding work. Not just a compulsion like, hey, I want to be an elder. No, I want to do that work. So they should never sign up for being an elder because they want to make money. Now, that that doesn't apply to the elders here. Usually our paradigm of non-vocational elders is really this concept where money would apply more to me, one one who's going to be a lead elder. But uh, as as we look at this, 
in the sense of application for all elders. An elder should never sign up for some other reason like pressure from others or prestige or talent. You know, just because a man's a good communicator or good speaker, good teacher, doesn't mean he should be an elder. Should never sign up because of tradition. It's just tradition in our church. Once a, once a man hits 60 years old, he's been in the church for 20 years. Automatic eldership. No, not because of tradition or political leverage. I've been in situations where men have risen to become an elder because they want to have some political leverage to make sure the church is done their way. And they shouldn't even serve just because they're godly men. Just because a man's godliness doesn't mean he should serve as an elder. A man should serve as an elder when his godliness lines up with his giftedness and an inner compulsion to want to do the work of an elder. He reads what an elder does here in the book, and he goes to himself, man, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to give my life to. And it's a big sacrifice. So there has to be this inner compulsion. And, and so that's why we have the word in there, not for sort of gain, but with eagerness. It's not with sort of gain, but with this prophemus in the soul of, of wanting to do the work. Now in verse 3, Peter added another element to define what is right for an elder. Elders are not to lord it over people but they are to prove to be an example. Let me read the verse. Not, I'm going I'm to get back to 1 Peter in here. I, I, I just want to reread this as it's written. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to their charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. But that is so Important. That's why I want to just pause and read that. The action of lording it over people speaks of this type of leadership that is autocratic, oppressive, manipulative, maybe intimidating, an overpowering kind of leadership. The ESV, if you're reading under there, it states it like this not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. The, the lording it over kind of leadership is a self-focused type of leadership that, that uses authority in a self-focused way to, for self-interest. So the elder's leadership is to be the opposite of that. And again, let's go back to what the Lord said. The Lord's definition of the, the nature of the elder's leadership comes in, in, in Matthew 20, 25. I want to read, read out of that text. Matthew 20, verse 25. You'll read down through 28. But Jesus called them to himself. You remember the context. The disciples were squabbling over who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. And that is, in, in their paradigm, the world's leadership the ones that are led exist for the leaders. It's the uh, dictator-slave model, king-servant model. The Lord went on to say in verse 26, It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So Jesus calls for this model of leadership that is opposite of the model the Gentiles had, have. 
that's still the model of leadership in this world. In the Lord's model of leadership, the leader exists for the ones who are led. It's the servant leadership model. And then Jesus used himself as the example. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Man, the Lord was a servant. This is where servant leadership comes in that phrase, in that concept. And that transfers to the elders of the church. We, us elders, are to be doing what is right in the sense of being servant leaders, not lording it over people, not, not finding ourselves manipulating or strong-arming. And I, I need to add that servant leadership is not weak leadership. Remember, Jesus used himself as the example in there of a servant leader. He was anything but weak. I mean, he was the epitome of boldness. Yeah, I mean, he had the zeal of a tiger. All those scenes where he confronted the Pharisees or went into the temple and declared his authority. I mean, he was the greatest example of boldness with zero, absolute zero fear of man at all in his humanness. Of course, he would have no fear of man in his deity, but in his humanness, none. I mean, he was strong and he was decisive, but he was a servant leader. It's a lot to live up to for elders to be servant leaders because that's not in the human nature. Servant leadership is not there. And let me just wrap up the idea of, of servant leader by pointing to that phrase in verse 3. If you're looking at it in your Bibles, proving to be examples. Elder leadership is a role modeling thing. I mean, that's not, this takes us away from the sheep shepherd model. I mean, the shepherd in, in that paradigm wasn't really a role model for sheep. Sheep, you know, that's not in there. But Peter brings it in to it by just stating it. You're, you prove yourself to be an example to the flock. So it's, I mean, it's a role modeling job. That's what the elder is supposed to be doing. That's like top priority according to Paul. Remember the, the uh, 1 Timothy 3 passage? The elder is to be above reproach. Well, I should also say that elders will never be a perfect example, never be a perfect role model, nobody is, but they are to be examples of godly men striving to live the word, men who are, are pushing their flesh away, saying no to the fleshly things in life, and when they do sin, they're quick to ask for forgiveness, quick to repent, quick to say where they've went wrong. And there are men who are pursuing Christ. You can obviously see something in their lives where they, they love the Lord. And men who are ministering to others like, like shepherds. Those are role models. So Peter defined the role and responsibilities of an elder. He defined doing right as this. They lead like shepherds, not under compulsion, not for sordid gain. They do it voluntarily. They do it with eagerness, willingly out of the soul. They don't lord it over people. They are like servant leaders. Elders are not called to be the savvy organization builders or marketeers or administrators or church board directors or supernatural soul fixers, but I will say they do do some of that. Maybe not the supernatural soul fixer stuff. <laughs> they bring counsel to people, but, but, but that's not who they are. That's not what defines an elder, and again, it's, it's so important in our culture this, this text, this passage, these concepts, they tell you as a church what the expectations are for an elder. This, this is what you should expect out of your elders, what you should expect out of the elder called a pastor. 
and it tells you what not to expect. And I, I say this, that this passage is also necessary, not, because it, it, not, not only because it tells us what to expect and it defines what an elder is, and it, this passage leads the church, and, but because elders can be tempted to function outside of God's will in their leadership. And, and I'm not necessarily saying they're tempted to sin and sin their way out of eldership, but just tempted to, to function, to, to look what's going on around the country, to see the, the massive mega churches and, and start to copy what so-and-so is doing because, man, there's so much pressure that I have to grow my church and I have to do this and this. And, and so I'm just going to... That's what can happen in an elder's mind. And they can be tempted. So here we have this passage that says, no, no, this, this is what an elder does right here. So that concludes verses 1, uh, one through 4 of 1 Peter 5. And those are Peter's instructions to the elders, exhorting them in doing what is right concerning their leadership. Again, I find that so amazing in that context. You know, he, it's, it's almost like, you know, if we were to write something this, we would say, church, just... I hope you survive. Remember Jesus and, and, and survive. But no, Peter is giving them detailed instructions on how to lead the church, even with the coming Neronian persecution. It's amazing. God is in control. And all through the centuries, even today, this is how God wants his church led by the elders. Now, you're probably noticing that we're out of time, and we are out of time. But yet we still have more to do. And as I, as I said this, is, this was just an important text to get into these details. So fitting for someone who's coming <laughs> as a candidate. But I, I, and I would tell you just by way of understanding how I would preach, you know, I, I, I would turn this into a two-part series and we would walk through this. And actually in this, this text, verses 8 and 9 are connected to this theme. Peter, in that verse 19 of chapter 4, Peter's just focused on doing what is right and he comes down through chapter 5 and and. Even in verses 8 and 9 in chapter 5 where our spiritual warfare is brought up, Peter's theme is doing what is right and making a, a, a stand, a commitment to Christ. That's what's right in the spiritual warfare that we fight every day in our minds. But uh, let me wrap it up by saying this. Again, I'm reemphasizing. We can't be driven by emotion when it comes to our understanding of the elders' leadership, what we feel they should be doing, what, an, what we feel like an elder should be doing for me. We can't be driven by pragmatism or popular thought. We have to be driven by doing what is right according to this book that God has given us. That's what has to drive us. And when we do do that, that's a testimony and a witness to those around us, a testimony and a witness to our commitment to the word, commitment to our understanding that our Lord has inspired the scripture and we're going to be committed to the biblical definition of an elder. And that goes a long way in this world where very few people are focused on doing what is right. And even so many churches have given up on a, a commitment to the word of God. But I just pray for you that he strengthens you in your efforts to do what is right. And I, I just, I would love to get to these other things, the church's humility and humbly accepting God's afflicting circumstances. There's so much to say in that and doing what's 
what's right. But um, we need to pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us and it so clearly leads and guides us. Thank you that you've blessed us with the truth and knowing you and redeemed us from our sin, given us your grace in which we stand. We just bless your holy name. Amen. If you've never been with us, one of the things that we like to do every week is remember Jesus in the bread and in the juice. And, you know, as we reflect on a passage like that and remember that Jesus is our chief shepherd, there's something else really interesting that uh, you see in the Bible, and that is that Jesus also condescended to become a lamb. And Jesus became the shepherd who was the sacrificial lamb, the one who paid the price for our sins. And so now this is our opportunity to remember that sacrifice, to remember what he did. You know, if, if you are not a believer, if you have never put your faith and, and hope in Jesus Christ uh, for forgiveness of sins, we ask that you, you to just uh, sit, sit this out, let this uh, time go by, um, reflect and examine your heart, uh, and we would encourage you, Today is the day of salvation. Today is, is the day to, to come to Jesus. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll remember Jesus and the bread and the juice. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God, uh, slain for us. Lord, help us to be people who do what is right, who are faithful to your word, who follow your ways. I uh, thank you that Jesus uh, paid the ultimate price for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.